Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Culture Change, Winning Hearts and Minds for Safety, sponsored by Aveta. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I am moderating today's presentation. First, we'd like to thank you for joining us, and on behalf of the National Safety Council, employees are currently working away from the office. We hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first, there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box on the left-hand side of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Please feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You do not have to wait for the Q&A to begin. Now, we'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. If you have any technical issues during this webcast, please refer to our helpful list on the right-hand portion of your screen, and for basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located at the bottom. After this presentation, we'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll let you know more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event to view this webcast and all of our past webcasts. Please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Finally, our sponsor, Aveta, has generously provided links to additional information, which you find under the resources widget on your screen. With that, let's introduce our speaker. With us today is Corey Worden, a safety advisor for the City of Houston's Health Department and author of nine books. In his distinguished career, Corey's been named the 2014 ISHM Safety Professional of the Year, a 2015 National Safety Council Rising Star, the 2016 ASSB Healthcare Practice Specialty Safety Professional of the Year, the 2017 AOHP National Extraordinary Member, and has been a recipient of the AOHP's 2018 Extraordinary Services Award, and the 2020 Houston Health Department Excellence in Community Service Award. A veteran of the United States Air Force, Corey has also earned numerous military awards and medals. Again, we'd like to thank you all for joining us for today's presentation. Corey, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Great, thank you. I sure appreciate y'all having me on today. Um, <clears throat> so today, what I wanted to talk about was some information on culture change. And um, this is a kind of quick preface to this. This is one of those topics that it gets a lot of a lot of lip service, you know, throughout the safety field over over the span of decades and decades. And it's one of those things that um, I've always had a great interest in because what I've always been on the look for is a um, you know an actionable process. And it was one of those things that I was never quite able to find. So what I started looking into was where did it come from? You know, the the old the old adage, winning hearts and minds. Where where the heck did that actually come from? And I know that that has been used many times, you know, talking about military operations, um, specifically in the context of, uh, well, popularly in Vietnam and, and more recently in Afghanistan, um, but dating as far back as World War One. And so what I wanted to do was look into that and see what exactly had happened and what were those processes used and then transfer that information, kind of synthesize it into a safety context. And so that kind of brings us here today. So again, I appreciate y'all having me. I appreciate the introduction. And uh, we'll kind of kind of get into it. <clears throat> so if we haven't met in person, um, hopefully we can one day. <laughs> Unfortunately, this pandemic is still going on. But uh, I'm Corey. Um, my current role, I'm the safety advisor for the Houston Health Department. Uh, in my previous lives, I've, I've been in healthcare uh, as far as healthcare systems hospitals. Um, before that, I was with municipal government, and before that, I was in manufacturing, construction, and then before that, I was an emergency manager in the, in the U.S. Air Force. So I'm um, in a lot of different, lot of different places and uh, had a lot of different experiences, very proud of them, and learned a lot the whole way. So um, within that, I've done a lot of education and a lot of research. Um, it's actually interesting, it's most of uh, what led me to this point with this particular research and this particular subject <clears throat> was a lot of books that I actually read while I was on military deployments. 
So uh, it's kind of fitting that a lot of the information came from the same environments that it was originated in. So with that, um, I always also say that if anybody's interested in any further information on this, such as um, the, there's, a, there's a book I wrote on it and, and several articles and whatnot, I'm happy to share that. So please feel free to let me know and I'll be happy to send it to you, of course, for free. Um, so with that, this, this particular conversation today talks about the need for culture change and why that's so important with safety. Talks about the background and high reliability and why culture change is so important for that. And then it talks about the theoretical framework behind that, which was developed within those same military operations where they talk about winning hearts and minds. And that comes from what they call counterinsurgency. So ultimately, if we're talking about it in terms of hazards, you know, within a military operation, what they're concerned about is ultimately the hazard of workplace violence, you know, in the form of terrorism and combat operations. And in order to prevent that, you know, there's two ways to go about it, of course, one of which is winning hearts and minds to mitigate and subdue the violence. And the other one is direct action, which is complete, you know, um, kinetic counter operations. So within that context, you know, we obviously prefer winning hearts and minds. So we're going to talk about that today. So the first thing first is the need for culture change. So how do we make that case? You know, there's a lot of conversations about that. There's a lot of different variables involved, but of course what it starts with is enterprise risk management. So whether we're talking about an organization or municipality or any type of government or any type of organization, you know, of course there's four different types of risk. Um, and four, uh, excuse me, three, that, three different types of risk and then four different types of ways to deal with them. So we have our internal risk that we deal with and we have of course strategic risk, which would be our long-term ability to operate then we have our external risk, which is things that we have, have little or no control over, like natural disasters and whatnot. Uh, then, of course, we have operational risk that also fits into that internal risk spectrum, which is our ability to operate on a day-to-day -day basis. So when we talk about controlling that, we can either accept it, you know, which would be to, to assume the fact that there's uh, not much we can do about it. Or, of course, the next step will be that we can avoid it, which there's been a lot of conversations about avoidance and transfer lately with the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of, um, I know you just mentioned it a minute ago, in terms of working remotely or working from home, which could be considered avoiding it by avoiding congregations, or that could also be considered transferring the risk by transferring the work location. But either way, there's a lot of that going on. Uh, and then, of course, there's risk control, which is the bulk of what we're going to talk about today, which also subdues into or subsets into loss prevention, loss control. So when we look at that, we take our risk management and then we break that down into uh, subsets. We have the hierarchy of controls. And then within that, of course, there's a number of regulations, national consensus standards, best practices, and situational awareness, coaching and training, all that kind of fits in that bucket. And then between that, beneath that, we have hazard analysis and risk assessment, which is what happens with each individual each every day. Where we look for the hazards, identify the necessary controls and respond to them. And then we have that area at the bottom, which is going to be those situations that we have to consider in terms of people's perceptions and people's ability to want to work safely. So that's where that question becomes, we can provide all the compliance in the world, we can provide all the regulations, we can provide all the hierarchy of controls, we can provide the training, but how do we get to where people want to work safely? And more importantly, how do we get to where we can get people to want to work safely, even in situations where it's known that if they work faster and harder, sometimes even bypassing safety protocols, they can have more productivity. So how do we get that even when people feel like there's a, um, there's a byproduct or an intrinsic benefit from not working safely? So that's what we're kind of getting into is how do we do that? And of course, as we know, it's, it's an art and a science. Um, so if we look at controls, of course, we have passive controls, which would be your you know, elimination, substitution, uh, some engineering controls. The, those types of controls, they're going to be there regardless of human action. And then we have the active controls. That's going to be our things like, mo like most administrative controls, PPE use, a lot of training recall. Um, regardless of the control training is always going to be an administrative control because it has to be recalled and used at will. And so if we look at that, any type of the passive controls, which are going to be things like 
if we look at X of God, based on the Heinrich model here, X of God, like boarding up windows or sandbagging doors. If we look at unsafe conditions, things like um, uh, equipment issues, facilities issues, things like process change, those things can all be addressed scientifically. We can address those things sometimes with, uh, you know, brick and mortar solutions or tangible solutions, you know, things, things that we can physically put our hands on. But if we're talking about unsafe acts and getting people to want to follow the process and want to use the procedure and follow the, uh, put on the PPE, that's where it's an art form. And as we all know, uh, especially in the military, they train it as such as, you know, leadership is an art. It's one of the hardest arts to master or to even become good at, you know, the ability to positively influence people. So from that point, that brings us into these theories of how these accidents manifest. So the first one, of course, is the net normal accident theory. And normal accident theory, you know, it came about as a as a extension of the Three Mile Island disaster, where what the decision was is that if you have these accidents with these what they call highly complex, tightly coupled systems, these things that have a lot of moving parts and a lot of people involved, that inevitably there's going to be a catastrophic failure. It's it's just the way it goes. You know, the, statistically there's going to be something that goes wrong to the point where it's catastrophic, such as a nuclear situation or a um, uh, a situation with with healthcare services like complex surgery or space flight, like the Columbia or Challenger disasters, things of that nature, or naval aviation landing an aircraft on an aircraft carrier. You know, so if we're talking about normal accident theory. Then the conclusion there was that these these things are just going to happen, and it's, it's what I've heard way too many times in the the 16 years I've been doing this is, you know, is quote unquote the cost of doing business, which is a very unfortunate way to look at it. So the counter to that is the high reliability theory, which there, there's a lot of people involved in high reliability theory, you know, long before me, and I, this is a huge part of my research. Is um, the first stepping stone here is. We want to get to high reliability theory. We want to get to high reliability operations. So the first question there is, what does that even mean? So if we have these operations that are potentially catastrophic, then what we're going to look for there is, they, they always say prioritization of safety, but of course, as we all know, we want to value safety. We want safety to be an ongoing, ever longstanding value in our operations. It never goes away. And so within that, we want to make sure our designs and procedures are as controlled as possible limited trial and error, redundancy, so we have systematic uh, layers of hazard control that reinforce each other. And then from there, we want to decentralize the decision making so that we can defer to experts and we can make sure that we're doing things as safe as possible. And it doesn't necessarily have to fall on a hierarchical, hierarchical chain of command. It can fall on the people who have the best subject matter expertise. And we can put that into the equation and make sure we have it as safe as possible then we can use exercises and leading indicators to reinforce that. And so then once we do that, we're now integrating those safe conditions, which is all of our compliance and our hierarchy of controls, and now we have the safe behaviors. And so now we know the, what we're trying to get to. So if we're trying to get to this high reliability operation, the gap now is if we're trying to go there, we have to cross this minefield of potential unsafe behaviors, unsafe conditions. Now, the unsafe conditions, we have a pretty good roadmap because we can look at all the Code of Federal Regulations, we can look at all the research that's done. You know, there's numerous subject matter experts, you know, far beyond me. And all of that can be taken into consideration. But the question still remains is how do we win those hearts and minds so that people want to work safely even when it may limit productivity or in some cases, I've heard stories of, you know, people that have been have been scolded or reprimanded for following a safety procedure when it impacted productivity. So how do you get people to want to work safely and win those hearts and minds when there's those potential byproducts that are unfortunate and completely unnecessary? So how do we get there? That's what we started looking at. And that's where I looked at where this come from. Because if you look at the military, they're saying, okay, we're going to go to this country, whether it be um, well, of course, worldwide and World War One, or whether we're talking about uh, Vietnam or whether Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or Libya, how do we how do we get people to want to choose democracy and freedom in the face of imminent violence 
when you have these insurgents that are coming into your village or into your tribal area, and they're telling you that if you if you partner with the United States for the cause of peace, love, and freedom, we are we are going to kill you and your family. So how do you get them to want to be safe? And that's what we say. If we're looking at the, if we're looking at it strictly black and white in terms of hazards, we're talking about workplace violence. So how do you get people to want to choose safety and peace and freedom in the face of imminent workplace violence? And that's the same thing as if we're asking somebody in a factory to choose safety, knowing that they might have somebody that might try to reprimand them for impacting productivity. So it's a little less severe, but it's the same type of conversation. So how do we do that? And that's where we're talking about counterinsurgency. So then I thought, okay, well, how do we take counterinsurgency and now transfer that to where we're not talking about guns and bombs and we're not talking about close air support. Now we're talking about convincing people to work safely using hazard controls in the American workplace, or I shouldn't say American, in the worldwide workplace. So if we look at that now, it turns into this. So what this comes up with is if we're trying to go from normal accident theory on the left-hand side to high reliability on the right-hand side, now we have to get across that landscape. And so we're going to do that with our counterinsurgency, that we're going to transfer it. So now we have to set expectations between leadership and employees, just like we would if we were setting expectations between leaders and, um, and uh, the, the persons of the country that the military was in. So we're saying what we're going to do is we're going to acknowledge what the potential hazard is. We all know what's on the plate. And then we're going to provide the hazard controls and we're going to provide the benefits to where you're going to, we, we want you to want to do this. So what we're going to do here is provide the hazard control. We're going to communicate it. We're going to validate it. We're going to give all the benefits from it, which in this case means that you get to go home safely every day. Productivity inevitably goes up, and everybody ends up in a healthier, happier workplace. And so that's the same thing as telling a, a village in Afghanistan, we understand that there are dangers associated here, but what we're going to do is we're going to come in, we acknowledge the hazard, we're going to provide what you need to be safe, which in that case would be something called internal foreign defense. That's what we're talking about, the guns and the bombs and whatnot. But we're also talking about building schools and hospitals and all the things that are needed for civilization. And then from there, we're going to communicate those things. We're going to validate that they're being done. We're going to follow up on it. If there's any incidents, we're going to follow up on those. And then ultimately, it's going to come to the point where we have people that choose to be safe. And then for the people that aren't safe, we're going to follow up and we're going to continue working on it. We're going to figure out if we can convince them. We're going to continue to control the hazards, communicate the expectations, validate through leading indicators. And then ultimately for the people who still absolutely choose to be unsafe, when it becomes their decision, then at that point through a just culture, then it becomes equitable for accountability, which in the case of the military, that will be talking about people who are still choosing violence. In that case, that's where it goes to direct action as opposed to counterinsurgency. In our case, we're not talking about that. We're talking about that would be human resources, having a conversation with them about being unsafe and possible termination of employment. But to get to this point, let's look at it piece by piece. So how do we affect the culture change? So if we look at it in terms the way the military did, then we're looking at a contest for hearts and minds through empowerment, ownership, support, and security. So we're going to provide these things so that people know that if they work safely, they're empowered to work safely. They have the full support of leadership. They have support. They have hazard controls. And they have, they have job security. They don't have to worry about being fired for being safe. That's the expectation. That's the value. And that's why it's so important for that leadership support to come first and foremost. So then from there, now we get into the, the nuts and bolts or the moving parts. So if we look at any environment, on one hand, we're always going to have people that are for the cause. Those are our people that want to be safe. Those are the people that are supportive. It's about 25%. And then on the other side, we're going to have the people that are adamantly opposed. Those are the people that are always going to say, nope, I'm not for it because I, I, it impacts productivity or whatever the case may be. Then you're going to have your people in the middle that are neutral. It's about 50% of your population. So what I refer to them as subject to the local culture. 
So if we look here, in any given population, whether you're talking about a town, a village, or whether you're talking about a, a crew in a factory or a municipal crew in a government or whatnot, either way, you got your 25% that are diligently safe, you got 25% that are defiantly unsafe, and then you got 50% in the middle that are going to be subject to local culture. So what that means is if they come to work at 3 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, if their supervisor and their peers are telling them you need to follow the standard operating procedure, work safely, use the PPE, if there's any questions, make sure you ask first, then they're going to be swayed to become diligently safe. On the other hand, if you have people that they come to work at 3 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday and their supervisor and their peers are saying, forget that, don't follow the SOP, don't follow the JSA, don't wear the PPE, it impacts productivity, we need to cut the corner and make more gadgets, then they're going to be swayed to be defiantly unsafe. So now the question is, how do we work it to where people want to be And so that's where we get here. So now we take our hazard control model, and what we're going to do is look at that in terms of a counterinsurgency. So if we look at the top, we have our commitment, population engagement. That's where we have our safety. So now we're engaging the people that are diligently safe. So we're taking the people that are already working on the cause, they're already there, and now we're going to work with them. So we're going to do our hazard and threat analysis and our risk assessment. We're going to put the hazard controls in place. We're going to work with the people that are subject matter experts. And so then from there, now we're going to go to work on the people that are neutral, the people that are subject to local culture. So we're going to do our information operations, which in our case is communication. We're going to communicate these hazard control expectations. We're going to communicate the needs. We're going to make sure people understand what's needed to be safe. And then from there, we're going to start doing our leading indicators. So we're going to do our observations and our inspections and our near-miss reports and all these things that validate whether or not we're being safe. And so now the question is, now we have the people that are diligently safe working, and now we're, we're working to sway the people that are subject to local culture. And so then from that point, if we're doing inspections and observations, if somebody is defiantly unsafe, now they're starting to hear about safety. They're starting to see it. They're seeing people doing leading indicators. They're hearing about JSAs. Now in their mind, it's going to start transferring. Well, now this, this organization is no longer willing to cut corners. They're no longer willing to be unsafe. Now it's expected of me to be safe. So now they're, more gonna, they're gonna be more likely to switch over to being diligently safe. And so that's where we're gonna start to work on that. And now the question is, as we start to make improvements and we start to see more leading indicators and more validity, and we start to see reliable, valid results to where the hazard controls are preventing incidents and they're gonna continue to prevent incidents, and that's not a fluke and it's not a lucky month, it's a consistent safety culture. Now, if we have people, if we see lagging indicators where we have incidents and they're being investigated, now we can start to see, we can start to stratify and separate if we have situations where people had an accident because there wasn't a hazard control or they didn't have the right hazard control or they didn't have the right training or they didn't have the right situational awareness or the right coaching, now we can tell the difference between those situations and the people that simply chose not to work safely. And the ones that chose not to work safely, we don't give up. We're going to simply keep working. We'll keep doing the communication, the hazard controls. We're going to do leading indicators, near-miss reports. We're going to follow up. We're going to do coaching. And then as that continues, if they continue to be unsafe, now we can get to the bottom of the pyramid here, the removal of the defiantly unsafe. Because now at this point, it's just culture. Now they've proven that they're unwilling to be safe. And that's very different than not knowing to be safe. So this will be where the military goes to direct action, which would be once somebody's proven to be a terrorist, they're going to kick in the door. In our case, we're simply going to identify them as they're unwilling to be safe. It's been proven through a just culture. Now it's time for that HR conversation. So we're using the same model here to simply identify where the needs are, how to affect the culture change, and how to do that methodically. So when we do that, we start with engagement. Now, the way this works is 
if we have one safety manager, one safety champion, I should say, for the whole organization, it's going to be unfeasible simply in terms of time and space, even in terms of bandwidth. So what's got to happen now is if we go to the next step, it looks like what the military did in 2007, where they did the surge. So what that means is they just simply flooded Iraq with so many soldiers that they were able to put security checkpoints on every corner. And it did quell the violence for a little bit, but only because you had so many people there. That would be the same thing as if you hired a number of safety, safety officers or safety managers, and they were just everywhere all the time with eyes on everybody. It wouldn't necessarily change the safety culture. It would just be a surge. And so people might be safer, but it's not necessarily because they want to be. It's because they're just constantly being looked at. So that's not necessarily where we want to go either. But if we look at the next step, now we've got an intrinsic safety culture. So now we're starting to figure out who's diligently safe, who's defiantly unsafe, who's subject to local culture and neutral, and how we can work on through safety committees, through hazard controls, through leading indicators and communication, how we can work on swaying those neutral subject local culture persons to being diligently safe. And that turns those people to where they want to be safe and they self-replicate the safety culture. So the safety manager isn't necessarily the safety manager. They're simply the guide. They're simply the rudder for the ship. And so then we get to this point here where everybody plays a role. So you can see in the middle, the nucleus of all this is that we have to have safe behaviors and safe conditions. That's where we all want to be. To get to that point, we have to have communication. We have to have hazard analysis hierarchy of controls, and of course that also includes situational awareness. We have to have information, communication, leading indicators. We have to have targeted controls when there are findings on leading indicators. And we have to have lagging indicators and in investigations or analyses, root cause analyses. So to get all those things done, leadership, of course, has to set the example, set expectations, recognize people that are performing well with safety, due diligence, make sure they're providing the hazard controls, make sure they're setting aside the training, make sure that uh, setting aside time for training, make sure that things are happening the way they're supposed to based on that guidance they're getting from their safety committee and from their SME. And then within that occupational health and safety, who in the past, a lot of organizations expected to simply be safety, now they can do what they're supposed to do, which is consultation, assistance, support, process oversight. They can they can be that rudder instead of trying to be everything for everyone, which is impossible and just ends up being a scapegoat. So with that, then if we look at this a little bit closer, of course, we have the needs assessment, which there's a lot of human factors involved here. And there's a lot of people who've done a lot of work on human factors, you know, far beyond me. So the questions, of course, are, you know, why do people choose to work unsafely? It's a question for the ages. And that, of course, involves home life factors. It involves previous experience, fatigue. I, I can tell you in the hospitals, if you have somebody that works 12-hour shifts, six days a week, that they're going to be tired. You know, and you have a lot of stress, especially now with this pandemic and a lot of things going on. This time last year, we had a lot of workplace violence issues going on around the country. Um, so with that, we want to work toward coaching we want to acknowledge that and make sure that the human error is not looked at as a punitive thing. It's not the kind of thing we want to go straight to direct action. We want to work to that counterinsurgency of, of the hazard analysis, putting the controls in place, doing the coaching, doing the communication, doing the leading indicators. And then if there is a human error situation, we got to figure out where, what were we missing? we got to hold ourselves accountable first. Did we miss a control? Did we not communicate? Did we not train? Did we not coach? And then if we get to the point where someone is simply choosing to be unsafe, then it becomes an accountability issue. So then from that point, we have our controls. So we, we all know the hierarchy of controls, of course. Um, I don't want to you know, sing to the choir. We have elimination, <clears throat> excuse me, substitution, engineering, administrative, PPE, and all of those require training. You know, I've seen a lot of situations in 16 years where organizations will mistake training for a hazard control, but the reality is you have to have the hazard control first and then provide the training on the control as opposed to calling the training the control. So once we have that, if we look at it in terms of what the military does, they have civil affairs. 
that's where they're going to provide the needs of the community. So they're going to provide things like schools and hospitals and what we call uh, foreign internal defense, which is how they can defend themselves, security. So they're not just saying we want you to choose to be safe, knowing that the insurgents going to come in here and start shooting. We're going to say we want you to choose to be safe, but we're going to give you all the tools and resources you need to do that. And we're going to give you all the support you need to do that. And that includes training and it includes logistics and security. So people not only have to know the expectations, you're expected to work safely, but they have to know here's how you do it, here's what you need to do it, and not only are you expected to do it, but you're not going to get in trouble for doing it. That has to be very well known is that you're going to be recognized and rewarded for being safe. You're not going to be fired for being safe. And that goes a long way, same way it does in the military where they would say, we want you to choose to side with us, knowing that people don't want you to, but we're going to support you and we're going to work with you and supply you. You're, we're not just going to let you get slaughtered. Yeah. And so then from there, then we teach conditioning. So the situation awareness is huge. If we want people to recognize hazards in real time, then we have to be able to do that in a methodical way. And so they have the, the ODA loop, which is uh, formulated by Colonel John Boyd, who retired from the Air Force. In 1976, he developed the ODA loop, which is Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. And that goes a long way. That's been used in aerial combat, been used in uh, ground combat with the Marine Corps and the Army Special Forces. Then it was translated into law enforcement. Now they use it in emergency management, and they use it in counter chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear operations. So just the same, it can be used in any safety function where we're trying to recognize a hazard, whether it be chemical whether it be a biohazard, whether it's a permit required confined space, whether we're talking about workplace violence, any of these hazards it applies to because we can observe, figure out what's going on, orient, figure out what our controls are, what our expectations are, what our training says, and then we can make a decision and we can work safely in real time. And that's an invaluable part of training that goes right in hand in hand with the job safety analysis. So you can see here, this kind of breaks out the ODA loop. Um, Colonel Boyd wrote it in a very precise manner. But if you break it out in terms of um, the workplace, what we're looking at is a very specific hazard. Then from there, we're looking at a very specific control, making a decision to work safely, and then doing that before there's an injury or an exposure. So then from there, we want to communicate these things. So as you can see here, we want to make sure we're communicating effectively. This model you'll see is the military version. So in terms there, they're talking about host nations, they're talking about civil security, they're talking about economic development. So we want to figure out how we can make sure that communication works in our favor. So we want to make sure we're advertising improvements. So if we're providing hazard controls, we want to let people know about that. Here's this, here's this new ergonomic lift we got or here's this new process we have that's making it safer. Here's this new PPE that fits better, you know, whatever it is. And then we have to acknowledge that some of these things, sometimes they can work against us. You know, if we, if we put out notifications every time we're going to do an inspection or an observation, there's a chance that all those are going to come back looking beautiful. But then as soon as we leave, they go back to cutting corners. So sometimes we want to know when to, not advertise things. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that ultimately whoever gets out the best information first is going to win. So it's one of those things where if we're talking about people that are defiantly unsafe, we have to recognize they're also communicating. So if we're communicating safety behind the doors, they're also saying, oh, don't worry about that because that's going to say, that's going to cost time. It's going to cost productivity. We're not going to be able to make as many widgets. So we have to acknowledge that and we have to be able to get the information out and undermine and counter that information that they're putting out, which is, in short, it's propaganda. So as you see there, what you see is information, if you look at it in terms of an actual counterinsurgency, they have psychological operations, uh, morale operations, and then what they call black propaganda, which is bad information, disinformation. And un unfortunately, the whole country has learned uh, a, a pretty harsh lesson in disinformation in the last year because there's been so much 
so much disinformation and misinformation going on about the pandemic um, as far as what the expectations are for hazard control. So it's very important to make sure we have legitimate, valid, reliable information to go out so people know how to work safely, when to work safely, and that it's supported by the organization. So then from that point, now we want to look at how are we measuring this? So if we look at our leading indicators, of course, as we all know, the guy chasing the lagging indicators, all he's doing is chasing an incident that already happened, trying to figure out what went wrong, losing money, reading workers' comp claims, and reading incident reports. But if you see the guy on the other side, he's predicting things because he's looking at near-miss reports. He's looking at inspections. He's looking at observations. He's looking at perception surveys. So he can see very clearly the bad stuff that may be coming. So he's able to prevent it. And that's the most important part here is that we become proactive. So if you're talking about that in terms of what the military sees, they have, well, now I was in the Air Force, they have what's called eagle eyes reports so that anything that seems out of sorts gets reported and that way it can be followed up on. It's the same thing as a near-miss report or an observation report or an, or an inspection. Now, if we're talking about it in terms of incidents, you know, like I said before, the one thing that's always been bothersome in 16 years for me is when people say that incidents are the cost of doing business. But if you look at it in terms of the military, if the Army or the Marine Corps goes out and they have an ambush, they're never going to go back to base and say, well, that's the cost of doing business. They're always going to say, okay, what happened? What do we look for to prevent that? Okay, so now we know if we go into an alley, if we go if in, in Iraq in the mid-2000s, the the insurgency okay, in Iraq was putting IEDs or improvised explosive devices in, in the bodies of dead animals on the side of the road. So they learned very quickly that leading indicator is to look for those things to prevent IED explosions. And so with that, any leading indicators are always important because if we see something out of sorts, like environmental degradation, if you see that housekeeping's bad, if you see that the workplace is starting to look filthy, things aren't as they should be, that's a pretty good indicator that people aren't looking out for safety. If you see upheaval of normalcy, procedures aren't being followed, people aren't wearing PPE, um, people don't know procedures, training's not happening, these are all indicators that is probably not safe because there's a lot of things that are not there as they should be. Then if we look at predictability, if we look at something like workplace violence, we know if someone yells at me, threatens me, makes, you know, obscene gestures, I'm pretty certain that that person doesn't like me very much. So it's the same kind of thing we can look at with leading indicators is that if we see unsafe acts, if we see you know, people uh, processes not being followed, hazard controls not being used, if we see inspections that come back with, we don't have the right inventory of PPE, we don't, um, we don't have lockout procedures posted, you know, the permit required confined spaces aren't labeled, we don't have a HASCOM program, these are all indicators that we're not looking for these things that we need to find. So first things first is we need to do the inspections and the observations. Then second thing is once we find those things, we got to fix them. So if we can fix them before the accident happens, that's the same thing as knowing what to look for before somebody shoots at you or hits you with an explosive. And then, of course, we have the lagging indicators. That's going to be, in our case, we're talking about incident reports. In their case, they call it significant activities, which would be things like an IED or an ambush or anything of that nature. The point being is that's something that went wrong that shouldn't have gone wrong. So we want to be able to figure out why and how to, how to avoid repeating it. So if we look at incidents, there's really no good thing that comes out of it. You know, we start with the incident itself. Somebody gets injured or exposed. We have to take care of that person. That's first and foremost as far as ethics, but to make sure that person is taken care of. Then we have to figure out, is it recordable? Is it reportable? And then we have to figure out, okay, do we have days away, restrictions, transitional duty, may have an open medical claim, may have a direct cost associated with it. And then from there, it goes into indirect costs, which I'm sure we've all seen the pyramid, but if you break that down, we're talking about effects on productivity, but more importantly, effects on safety and effects on culture is that if we have effects on culture, if we're talking about uh, Larry Wilson's dangerous state of mind, 
If you have less people doing more work, you're talking about people that are now rushing, fatigued, frustrated, complacent, distracted, and all those things feed into more incidents. And that ball just keeps rolling. So the more we know, the more we can prevent. So the leading indicators are that much more important, but learning from the lagging indicators is much more important as well. Because for every incident, there should be an investigation. If there's not, that in itself is a leading indicator that we're not doing all we can to become better at safety. So if we're looking at investigations, one thing that's very important to me that I always like to point out is that if we're talking about the program cycle, the investigation or the incident analysis, that's only the last part of the equation. I've seen so many organizations over the years that the investigation is part is, is the bulk of the program. They'll say, well, we do safety. Every time something bad happens, we look into it. But the reality is that we always want to look at those things first and foremost and figure out what the hazard is, what the necessary controls are, communicate those expectations, do the leading indicators, figure out how we can validate that we're being safe. And then if we're not, we can fix it. And then only then if we miss all of those things, if we still have an accident or an incident, then we can analyze it, figure out what happened and, and how to fix it. So that, that's one big takeaway there is that's just the last part of that cycle. So if we're talking about the way they do in the, um, in the military there, they have what's called a sensitive site investigation, sensitive site exploitation, and intelligence gathering. So what that means is they're going to go into an area where something went wrong and they're going to do forensics. They're going to figure out what happened, whether it's chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, high explosive, IED, uh, ambush, small arms attack, mortars, um, indirect fire, artillery, whatever it may be. That's the same kind of concept we're talking about here is that we have to figure out what happened, how it happened, why it happened. And that's where the root cause analysis comes into it. Maybe done by a fault tree, maybe done by a failure modes effects analysis. There's a lot of tools in the box. But the important part is that we understand what happened, how it happened, and why it happened. Now, going back to the very beginning, one of the key takeaways from culture change and the concept of winning hearts and minds is that accountability can't be a foregone conclusion. So if we already know going into this that we have 50% of our population is neutral, meaning that they're subject to the local culture, we have 25% that are diligently safe. Those are the ones that are at your safety committee, the ones that are helping with inspections, observations, and your mission reports. Then you have 25% that are defiantly unsafe. So we want to prevent any of those people in the 50% neutral from going to be defiantly unsafe. So if we go in guns blazing and start firing people or scolding and writing people up for safety issues without doing diligence first, without making sure we know the hazard, we have the control, they've been trained, they know the expectations, they've been communicated with, they have the observations, the inspections, we've done all of our diligence. If we go in there and do accountability without having done all that, without having first placed the onus on ourselves as leaders, that person is gonna go be defiantly unsafe. It may, it may be something as clear as straight up telling people don't be safe or it may be subvergent, but either way, they're probably not gonna want to be safe if they feel like they're being set up for failure. So from there, we have to look at that in terms of, we have to figure out who is defiantly unsafe. And a lot of times that can only be done if people prove themselves to be that way. There's a, there's a big question that always comes up when I do this research on the military, is that when the military goes into, a, into an indigenous village like in Afghanistan, if they go in full body armor, full up armored Humvees, you know, 50 cal on top of the on top of the um, Humvee, it, it they show up arriving force. It looks like they're going to war, and so it's difficult to explain to them that they're there to help promote peace, love, and democracy. And so, what the message from the special forces has always been, who Special forces are kind of like professors of warfare. They're the ones that teach the foreign internal defense and whatnot. Um, their message has always been to go in 
without the armor, without your weapon raised. But the question from the conventional forces has always been, if we do that, we're going to get shot. We have to go in in a, in a protective, you know, in a, in a protective posture. It's the same kind of thing here is that a lot of organizations feel like the best risk management is as soon as there's an unsafe act, get rid of that person. Zero tolerance. But the reality is if you do that, there's a pretty good chance that your safety culture will never really get wings because people won't believe in it. They'll just think that they're getting set up for failure. So sometimes we have to let, if someone does an unsafe act, we have to assume the best, coach them, teach them, make sure they have what they need and let them work. And if they prove to us through time that they choose, actively choose to be unsafe, then then it can become time for progressive accountability. And that, like I said, that's not the same, you know, in, in the military kind of surgery, they're talking about violence. But in our case, we'd be talking about, you know, human resources type accountability. But even then, we don't want to go in there, you know, writing, uh, writing people up until we're certain that somebody's actively choosing to be unsafe. And that's one of the, the biggest takeaways of all the research I've done. So if we look at that, some of the lessons learned, it, again, it's counterproductive because we don't want people to lose faith in the safety program thinking they're being set up to get written up. And the second thing, you can't kill your way to victory. So it's one of the things that is very consistent among all the, anything I've ever read on the subject uh, in 15 years is that if you go in there, sir, you can, you can kill everybody in the village and it'll be secure. Or you can go in and you can set up so many checkpoints that it's secure, but nobody can move. Nobody can go to work and back. Nobody can do anything. So it has to be set up in a way that people want to do it. They have to be they want to be safe. If we're just locking people down with constant eyes on them and this fear of retaliation, they might be safe, but they're eventually just going to find another job or they're going to you know, do what they want when you're not looking. Um, and then, of course, rules of engagement. That's important also because the military is very, very clear about rules of engagement and the law of armed conflict. It's, you know, different situations have different ROEs. You, you, most of the time, you can't fire unless fired upon. Same thing here is that if we go around writing people up and firing people without having done our due diligence, it's on us. It's, it's our fault if the safety culture failed. Um, and then the last part there is that, again, the surge versus culture changes. We don't want to flood the place with eyes and just make it feel like a police state. We, we want people to choose to be safe, and that's done by providing them the support, the, the feeling of empowerment and ownership and security that comes with working safely. And then they're happy about it, and they want to do it. Um, the same thing there as far as the counterproductivity is what what happened a lot in the late 2000s or the early 2010s with uh there was a lot of a lot of drones and what they call targeted killings and what would happen is they would they would launch the drones and they would hit a target and unfortunately it did not remove the insurgency what it did was it had a lot of collateral damage and ended up creating more insurgents so the same kind of lesson can be learned here is that um, undue accountability can have the opposite effect. So with that, if we look at the big picture, again, we go back to back to here. If we were looking at this in a traditional safety context, the top would say safety committee, then it would say hazard analysis, then it would say hazard control, and then communication, leading indicators, targeted controls, lagging indicators, and investigations and analysis. If we translate that to a counterinsurgency, what we're trying to win hearts and minds in a potentially hostile environment, we have to first set our commitment. That's our safety committee. That's, that's the message from the CEO. That's where we say we support safety straight up. And then from there, we, we, we set up the decentralization. We let people know that they have the ownership and the empowerment to be safe. And they don't have to, they don't have to have, you know, somebody standing over them. They can make the decision to be safe. And then from there, you know, we do our hazard analysis, put the controls in place, make sure people have what they need, make sure people have that feeling of support. We communicate it on a consistent and recurring basis. We provide the training, and then we do our leading indicators to validate it. 
we have our observations, our inspections, but those are done in a positive, proactive way. So if we incentivize those, now we're incentivizing people to do things that make the place safer. People, if we incentivize observations, we're incentivizing people to look for hazards and to make things safer. Same thing with inspections or near mesh reports. If we incentivize lagging indicators, all that we're really doing is telling people just don't report incidents. So we wanna make sure that we're incentivizing things that make it safe. And then of course, we look at those lagging indicators if there's something that's undesirable there, we want to figure out how and why and what we can do to prevent it from reoccurring without turning the onus on to somebody who may not know different. Now, if they've proven themselves over time to be choosing to be unsafe, then of course it goes to direct action, um, which in our case would be accountability for their, for their job performance. So ultimately, we go back here to our cycle this is what workplace safety would look like. So we have our committee, we put our controls in place, we go to our information program and communicate those expectations, we look for our leading indicators, we look, fix anything that may be unsafe, then we look at our lagging indicators, we make our metrics, and then anything that we don't like, we take it back to the committee, we make it better, we continue that cycle and make things safer and safer. And then if we look at it, through the prism of a, of a counterinsurgency where they're trying to win hearts and minds in a hostile environment. Then we take that same thing. We look at here on the left side, we have normal accident theory. That's where we're saying something bad is going to happen whether we want it to or not. It's just the way it goes. But we don't accept that because that would mean there's going to be accidents, injuries, and exposures all the time. So instead, we want to go to high reliability. High reliability is on the right side. So how do we get to the value of safety? How do we get to safe design, safe procedures, proactivity, redundancy, decentralization? How do we get there knowing that half our population is neutral and 25% doesn't want to be safe because they think it impacts productivity? So we got to do a lot of convincing, just like we would if we're going into a village in Iraq. Okay, so we're going to say, okay, well, here's the expectations. We're going to give you what you need to be safe. We're going to empower you to be safe. We're going to communicate these things on a consistent recurring basis. We're going to look for it. We're going to recognize it. We're going to incentivize it. We're going to make sure that you feel comfortable being safe. And then from there, if something happens, we're going to figure out why we're going to make it better. Only if you continue to do it wrong and you choose to do it wrong actively, only then is there going to be consequences. And at that point, and this is all transparent, we can say right up front with the expectation setting, if you actively choose to be unsafe, eventually you're going to have to go away. But before any of that happens, we work with everybody and make sure you have what you need, have the support, have the resources, have the tools, and the empowerment, the energy to be safe. And then ultimately we can get to that high reliability culture. Um, I've seen organizations I've been with you know, we've, we've, we've been very fortunate. We've had a lot of successes. Um, so I, I can also tell you I've seen it. I, I've also seen some bad situations, unfortunately. Um, and I'm very, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm blessed that I had the experience in the military um, to see what the military does as far as I was in the Air Force and I work with the Army and Marines as well. Um, and I've, I've been overseas. Um, and then I've seen what goes on in construction Manufacturing, municipality, healthcare, and I'm in public health now. So um, I can't say I'm an expert, but um, I'm appreciative that you let me share what I do know in my 15 years of research on it. <laughs> like I said, um, if anybody would like the book this comes out of or any of my information, please feel free to let me know. Or if I can answer any questions now, I'm happy to also. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Corey, for this insightful presentation. And before we start the q and I want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve our future webcast. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey uh, by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Okay, now let's get to some questions. Um, 
Our first question, um, when someone is defiantly unsafe, you can coach them all you want, but they won't budge. How do you counter the spread of that person's point of view um, from, from poisoning others? Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> that's a difficult one, and that's really the, the challenge in the whole thing is that, um, you know, first and foremost, we want to make sure that we're being very clear about our expectations. And then from that point, once we have the expectations, you know, one of the things I always do, it, it's really very simple, is when I do my, my assistance visits to each of our facilities and each of our teams in the field, is I just straight up ask everybody, you know, do you have any concerns? Do you have anything you need to bring up? Do you need anything as far as resources and support? And that way, if nobody said anything, then that's um, they, they've been given the opportunity to bring it up. Um, then from that point, then we follow that up with the leading indicators, and we can tell pretty clearly on the leading indicators, especially when they're when they're unannounced through the observations and inspections. You know, we can see the reality as far as the conditions and the work practices. Um, so we kind of try the trends that way, um, and of course there's going to be unfortunate, you know, behind the door talk, and there's there's going to be negativity. Um, again, you know, we're careful not to act on that quickly because, you know, especially if it's hearsay, you know, we don't want to be counterproductive or have any kind of issues like that. We want to make sure that it's a positive conversation, and um, a lot of times, if I feel like or if I hear that somebody has that kind of negative attitude and they're, you know, quote unquote, you know, if they're poisoning somebody, then I just talk to them straight up and, you know, do you have any concerns? Why do you feel that way? You know, and um, then um, the, the observations and the inspections will kind of um, serve their purpose at that point. But um, there are there are case by case situations, you know, um, I, I can't can't speak for all of them, but uh, typically that method of action works pretty well in my, my experience. Next question. Um, so this is a, a certain scenario that this uh, this question asker is um, kind of proposing. So if you have an unsafe worker, why not give them, uh, I guess, more safety responsibilities or just or just some safety responsibilities in general? Oh, yeah. That that's a great idea, you know. I didn't I didn't mention that, but uh, that's certainly a way to. Um, I hate to use the phrase, but kind of kind of force the hand, you know. Is that um, if somebody is not if somebody's not not working safely, you know, if you really want to get to it quickly, you can say, okay, I I think that you, you know, I think that you want to work safely. I don't think that you're defiantly unsafe. So what I'd like you to do is, I want to use your subject matter expertise and I want you to be on the safety committee, or I want you to help with observations or inspections or whatnot, and I'm, I want you to work on this with us and become part of the team, and um, that'll tell you pretty quickly if that person is gonna be a contributor or, or if they're gonna push back. That's a, that's a very good idea. Did my line go out? Hi, Corey, you're still here. I think we've lost Alan, unfortunately, my colleague Alan. Oh, no, um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm here. I oh, sorry about button. that, Alan. I thought we lost you. No, I was just... Uh, um, I was just concluding things. Um, I was going to thank everyone, and I was going to say, unfortunately, we have run out of time, and that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. And I'd like to thank Corey Worden, our sponsor, Veta, and, of course, everyone who joined us today. Uh, take care and have a safe day.